Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another Carrier's Edge podcast. My name is Mark Morell. I'm a co-founder of Carrier's Edge. I'm, oops, sorry, cut you off. I'm Jane Jazrawi, the other co-founder of Carrier's Edge. And what I was going to say before I was so rudely interrupted was, and with me today is... Garth. <laughs> Party on, Wayne. Party on, Garth. Okay. So... It's That's f- what I always think. Every time we do that intro, I always think, you know, and with me, as always, is Garth. Yeah. And I think of Dana Carvey with his bad wig. Yeah. This and is what w- you get when I'm tired and have had anti-anxiety medication. Yeah, it's a Friday. It's been a long few weeks. It's been a busy few weeks. So who knows what this what, podcast has in store for us. What Jane is going to say. Well, that's always... Uh, something that people could lay bets on is what kind of crazy things are going to come out of Jane during one of these podcasts. So this is just going to be taking that up to the next level. It's going to be entertaining. Possibly. We'll see. What do you want to talk about? I don't even really know. I haven't thought that much about it. All right. I think we can talk about what we've been up to for the past couple of weeks, uh, as we often do. Mm -hmm. You've been in the middle of a tour I have uh, been doing the tour. You're two out of five weeks mm-hmm. down on your tour, so we can talk a little bit about that. We can talk about what's coming up. We can talk about uh, what we're working on, and uh, we'll see where it goes from there. All right. So let's start with your tour. Um, so you are a featured speaker in the Great West Casualty Leadership Symposium, which is a tour of five cities, and... Two weeks ago, uh, I accompanied you down to Knoxville, Tennessee for the first one. And last week, or this past week, you were in Phoenix. No, it was in Chandler. Chandler. A little outside of Phoenix. Right. Chandler, uh, Arizona. Basically Phoenix. Yeah, you fly For the Phoenix. people who live there, probably that's annoying. It's like saying people who live in Markham live in Toronto. Mm. That's not, you don't. You don't live in Toronto. You live near Toronto. But I think there's probably not that many people that live in Chandler and listen to this podcast. So for those people who do, <laughs> you have my apologies. For all of the rest of North America, it's Phoenix. <laughs> all righty then. But I'm a little bit envious of you because it was, it was from what I understand, it was stinking hot. hot. It wasn't stinking hot. It was really nice out, though. It was, it was hot enough that I could wear jeans, but it was... Um, It wasn't like too, too hot. And it wasn't, uh, what do you call it when it's muggy? Humid. Yeah, it wasn't humid, so it was really nice. I know. Well, that's why. But it was very, very nice to have heat without humidity. Mm -hmm. Well, the week before when we were in Knoxville, we were freezing the whole time. Which is weird because it wasn't super cold out. No, it was was the fact that they had like, Either the AC was broken at the end of the hall or they were cranking out some nasty cold air, sub-zero air right next to our room. Well, and even the room, either you had this, like, I don't know what it was, like this industrial age um, boiler (laughs) furnace thing going by the window (laughs) that sounded like a a train going by, uh, or you had nothing and it immediately became like sub-freezing temperatures. Yeah. Oh, I was happy to get out of that hotel room. Yes. Um, but the Knoxville The actual event, event was nice. Was nice. The yeah. people were great. Um, good turnout. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a very well-run event and nicely organized. And interesting, too. It was interesting. Uh, yeah. good speakers. Mm-hmm. I, I, unfortunately, uh, am not as inspiring as a couple of the other people who are you know, some speakers do tours and, you know, that they do the same speech over and over again and it, because they've written a book. So the, the speech goes with their book and uh, they can be very, very motivational because they're not really, you know, they're not doing what I'm trying to do, which is talk about, you know, how Best Fleets is improving trucking. I'm not, you know, I'm not making people cry with the stories of good HR. Well, yeah. So I'm sandwiched between, you know, people are bawling because, uh, you know, uh, this one speaker, Kevin Brown, is talking about his his child with um, autism who has managed to overcome all these things and, you know, how to be a hero in your own life. And and then after me, like right after me is a Navy SEAL. 
I can't compete with the Navy SEAL. Um, so I, it was a little intimidating at first, but now I'm okay with it. It's like not everybody can be inspiring all the time. I have just as valuable information. Well, and I have many thoughts on that because I, I, I attended in Knoxville partly to see what it was all about. So I sat through all of those speakers. The only one I didn't see is the SEAL who was after you because we had to go. He was very good. Uh, yeah, I, I get the idea of what those kind of speakers are like. But what I found is, and, and I've, I've seen this, I go to enough different conferences, enough different events to, to get a sense of how to program these things in a way that's going to be really valuable for the audience. And there's certainly uh, events that are really well organized and some where they really don't have much on in their speakers. And, and what I found is that you really need to have a balance of all of those things. So you need to have somebody at an industry event, you need to have somebody who's doing the economic side, who's talking about the broader economic indicators and where the, the markets are going, where the future of the industry is going, all of that kind of stuff. That's valuable. And everybody that comes to those events wants to hear that input. You also need somebody who is going to give you some meat and potatoes uh, things that you can do that you can take action on when you leave and when you head back to the office. And uh, you know that's the stuff that when you come back from there after the sort of uh, great aura wears off of the event, you say, okay, so I'm going to put this into practice. What do I do? That's the speaker who gives you that kind of stuff. And then you need some speaker who does that motivational rah-rah thing, make you feel good about yourself and fill you with positivity, which gives you that motivation to act on all of those things that the other speakers are delivering. So there's sort of three main elements that most conferences include. And at this one, you're that meat and potato speaker. You're the one who's saying, uh, okay, here's what you can do, A, B, and C. Go back and think about this. Here's a question to ask yourself. Look at this. And that's something that they can go back to the office and immediately start thinking about. Or on the drive back home, if they often they just drive to these local events, they can start thinking about that. Yeah, what do we do about this? What do we do about that? Whereas the motivational guy, there's no nothing you can act on after those things. And, and I enjoy those speakers. They're, they're good speakers um, if they do it well and they've got a good message and stuff. But what do you do with it? You know, if uh, Kevin was a good speaker and had a good presentation and I could relate to it, but what do I do with it? If I'm now heading home, there's no action item for me based on his presentation. They're enjoyable, um, but you got to have a balance of those things. So this one is a little bit different in that there's a lot of those kind of motivational ones and less of the meat and potatoes. Actually, people. I wouldn't I would disagree because there's three of each. So there's me, um, the guy from uh, Bendix mm-hmm. and the uh, ATA. Well, the ATA guy is the state of the industry. That's the right. economy. So guy. there's three sort of these are the information, meat and potato stuff. And then there's three um Bob McCall, I think, mm-hmm. and, and then Kevin Brown and the Navy SEAL, whose name escapes me. So I did. I thought that it was a very well done conference. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed listening to all of the different speakers, and they're different. It's it's interesting because in trucking, you go to a conference, and and if it's a lot of outs or a lot of insiders, so you're hearing the same people or like people that you know mm-hmm. that are in trucking, you tend to hear the same thing over and over again and there tends to be a style. So it was nice to go out of the box. It was like mm-hmm. nice to go and see, okay, you know, here's someone who's talking just about being a leader or someone who's talking about just about, you know, their experiences and and so it was I think it was because it was the first time because I'm not a speaker. I'm not a professional speaker. I, I speak because I have something to talk about. And I have done lots and lots of speaking in, in a training context. So I've done that. But I've never been really exposed to uh, other speakers who do speaking for a living. Hmm. I don't do speaking for a living. I do it to promote my program. And it was a little intimidating the first time. Plus the fact, oh man, all of, well, there was a couple of things. The first thing, there was a really good um, 
mock trial. Mm -hmm. And the mock trial involved someone who had gotten injured, and they were detailing all the injuries. And, Mm -hmm. oh, man, just like big pictures of what the the injured organ looked like. And and it was kind of a little off-putting. Um, but it was part of the, it was part of the, not the defense, the other side, the, um, the plaintiff argument. Yes. The prosecution or the plaintiff. Yeah. That's what it was. And I had a car accident when I was 21 and I had similar, I didn't have the extent of the injuries, but some of the injuries were the same injuries that I had. And I had never really heard them talked about that way Mm. so I was kind of getting like kind of a little woozy just because it was and and you're sitting next to me going are you okay I think so I'm not sure (laughs) so that was a little overwhelming and then um and then Kevin Brown talking about uh based on his book and he has a son with autism, and that is also something that we have in common. So I have that all going through my head. And so by the time the next day is like, oh my God, can I even be, can I even speak properly? So it was a, now I'm good. Hmm. I'm, I have been, uh, I'm used to it now. Well, the funny thing I find with some of these motivational people is, they can be really powerful and very affecting the first time you see them, but then you see them the second time, and it's like word for word the same speech. Like they hit, they press play on it. But you you do that too. It's I know, amazing. But it, what it, it does can't. is it kind of makes you realize that, oh, it's a very calculated delivery that's designed to create the effect that it does. And it kind of loses its power. You know, by the time you finish this tour and you've heard these guys press play and do their speech four or five times, you're going to be like, yep, okay, well, he's coming up to the part where everybody cries now. Yeah, yep, it is. And, and I know that. It doesn't diminish the 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 power of the speech No, no, I'm all. not saying it just, that it makes yes. it a weaker speech. It's just there's a real wow factor the first time yeah. you see it. And, and I've seen this. I used to see this in the music business a lot, that people would go to see a band and they'd be blown away by this band. Oh, they're so amazing. They're so much better than us. But after the second or third time, you start to go, huh, wait a second, what about this? And what about that? And you start to realize that they've got a really big, powerful front, but behind them, they're just sort of a regular show. And um, it's not this otherworldly thing that you could never hope to achieve. It's really just a couple of specific pieces that they put together that allows them to deliver it in such a way that gives you that initial effect. So, well, what know. I think I'm, well, I think that's kind of where I am now is now I'm looking at it and going, okay, so how is, how are those things being incorporated and what can I learn from that for our speeches? Because we don't, I mean, this, these are, this is a really good learning opportunity for me because I'm seeing basically the back and the front of the stage and talking to the people who are speaking and it's uh it's cool it's it's something mm-hmm. i've never experienced so it's definitely um and something show valuable that's happening week after week after week so i don't really need to you know worry about remembering my <laughs> remembering mm-hmm. my speech because it's going to be it's going to be pretty uh well my only concern is that when we do the best fleets the one specifically on Best Fleets at the TCA convention, I'm not going to launch into the other one. That's my oh, you only won't, concern. because I'll be there to keep you yeah, in line. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that one we're doing together, mm-hmm. and I'm very rigid about the timing and you the organization. Are the, you are the press play kind of guy. I am Absolutely. not. So, you know, it'll be a novelty for you to have somebody mm-hmm. else sharing the stage and have somebody else worrying about the timing and the pacing that, so you don't have to. Yep. I Well... Yeah, I've gotten a lot better at that. I, I had I had one bad one where I just went way too fast and blew through my whole presentation and went, oh my God, what have I just done? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's tough because a lot of people think you know, they get worried about going too long or you know, they digress into all of these stories so they have a bad experience where they get to the end of their time and they've only covered two thirds of their material. So they're either trying to blast through it all in three minutes or they cut it a bunch. 
and then they get freaked out from it and they kind of go the opposite extreme, which is they burn through it. They don't take the time on things. They don't let the, the, the different pieces sit. Yeah. Uh, and then what ends up happening is they burn through it too fast. And that's just as bad for the audience because, and it's just as bad for the organizers because it throws them off. They've got a particular schedule that they're expecting everybody to follow. And if you're late, it's a problem for them. And if you're way early, it's a problem for them too. Yep. So it, it's very important to sort of keep it to that right pacing, which is why you've got to have markers at different points and say, all right, I'm starting at this time. Therefore, at 15 minutes, I need to be here. And at half hour, I need to be here and all of that kind of thing. Well, one of the really nice things about this particular um, set of talks is that you have your slides and it's, it's a really cool setup. So normally when we do a presentation, if we're using our own laptop and our own slides, we have it in presenter view. So we can see the time, right. we can see the next slide coming up. So it's easy. The one that I burned through really, really fast, the only thing I had was the slide. I had no idea what the time was. Yeah. And I was going to use my phone, but I think I put my phone down and then I couldn't remember where it was and I'm not used to using a phone. And, and I had the clicker in my hand as well. So it was all very... It was very, Well, see, that's I'm not good thing. enough that I can, I can adapt really, really quickly. And that's to something situations. that a lot of these events completely bugger up. They, they set up the speakers for failure because they don't allow you to do that. PowerPoint gives you a ton of tools to help you with your presentation, with that presenter mode where you can see the slide that's coming up next. You can see all of the other slides in the deck. You can see the time, like a clock. You can see the elapsed time. There's mm-hmm. all kinds of things that you can do if you use presenter mode. But a lot of these events, what they do is they have the main slides in behind you, the main screen behind you, and they'll have one um, monitor that's also mirroring that. So you only see the current slide. And then the laptop controlling it is way the hell off to the side where the AV people are. And it just, they hand you a clicker and say, go for it. Well, you just... Unless you're the kind of person that has memorized every slide and the order and knows where it is and has a watch on um, so you can track the time, you're out of luck. You're going to burn. A lot of people don't use slides at all. Well, they and, just like, and these speakers that, that speak on a regular basis didn't use any slides. Yeah, the motivational guys, they've got it down. It's, it's not a presentation. It's a speech. They know the pacing. They know how long... Uh, they need to spend on certain places and they know that it's going to end at 55 minutes and leave five minutes for questions. But if you're a normal presenter and you've got content and you've got slides that you're going to incorporate, um, you need to have those tools. So I always get frustrated when I go to an event and they're insisting that it's, they use their laptop that they provided and they're controlling all of this stuff and they take away all of the supports that PowerPoint provides to make it easier for you. Well, we've got the, for this particular series, what's, and I've kind of gotten used to it now that I've done it a couple of times, is that the, my presentation is actually sort of on, it's right in front of me. So the TCA kind of does the same kind of thing where your presentation or whatever the slides are going to be are sort of front and center. Mm-hmm. You can, The audience can't see them, but I can see them. So right. I can see my slides. So I only have to look down. I don't have to look yeah. around and try and find where I, you know, the biggest screen that I can find. I can just look down and there's right beside it is a countdown timer. Mm-hmm. So that. That's all right. That's perfect. Yeah. So it was really nice. Like once you, like I, in my first, the first time I did it, I, I got to around like the 35 minute mark and I thought, is there 35 minutes left or have I talked for 35 <laughs> minutes? So as I'm, as I'm talking, I'm trying to think, how am I going backwards or forwards? Oh my God, I really should think about that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And then you lose your train of thought. No, I didn't actually. I was really good. I was just like having this other conversation with myself in my head going, crap, what way is it going? And I figured that I would look back, I'll glance back at it in a minute and it'll, I'll know if it's in the 20s, it's counting down. If it's in the 40s, it's counting up. But that's part of my own issues is that I'm a little dyslexic. So even if you tell me something, you know, I think it's funny. My chiropractor does this to me all the time. Lie on your left side. 
I'm like, I don't know what that is. Other left. <laughs> well, I start turning and he's like, no. And I, and what I want him to do is say, turn and face the wall. Mm. But he'll never do that. He only turn it to your left or turn on your right side or whatever. He never does the same thing. And he always just laughs at me. And I'm like, tell me to face the wall. That'll, that will help me. Well, or there's point. a wall on each side. Face this way and point. Mm. Then I know what's going on. It's the same, uh, same thing with exercising. So people will say, you know, do this with your right on your right. And what I found is really good is there's a particular um, exercise video that I use where they say, um, use the front, the front leg. Mm. So if you are, it makes a lot more sense when you're doing it, but they're not saying right or left because they're doing the mirror thing mm. of you. So they will often say front and use your front leg or your back leg because you're often standing at, a, at an angle. So that makes a whole lot more sense to me. But saying left and right, I mean, I literally love to have it on my shoes. But even then I would be confused as to whether or not I was doing it the right way. Mm-hmm. But I've, I have ways of uh, dealing with that, but there's always that sense of, I, I really don't know what direction you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So hmm. I'm well, smart. <laughs> just not in that area. I have, well, I've, de- you know, I think the smart thing to do when your brain doesn't work a certain way is to develop ways around it, to develop, um, what do we call them? Supports, compensating measures. Compensating mechanisms. Yeah. And I have many of those. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. So does that get in the way of presentations or is it just struggling with the timers and trying to decide if it's a countdown or a count up? Doing the actual presentation? No. Yeah. I mean, unless you want me to memorize every word. That, Although, that's a, one that's thing that was nice there was that they had a remote which was color coded. So it wasn't often they've got buttons, sort of forward and back buttons, mm-hmm. and you press one or it can be what's weird is sometimes it's an up and down and the up button is next and the down button is back. And sometimes it's the opposite where up is back and the down button is next. So the fact that they had color coded green button yeah. goes forward and red button goes back. And like also that. the green button is way bigger than the red yes. button. So... So going back is a little bit more difficult if you have to, but you generally don't want to go back. You want to go forward. Well, this is another place where if they give you access to the machine that controls it, you have those tools to do that. So like PowerPoint, if you're in presenter mode, you can look at all of the slides and you can jump to one. So you don't have to just go back, 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 back through 20 different slides. Oh, yes, that's which right. Which I hate watching somebody presenting and they're skipping slides and going back and all of that. So use the presenter tools to um, jump to the slide that you want to get to. And I, I, I think it takes a while for people to start, to start doing things like that. Because you got to think, if you have six or seven speakers at a function... All of those speakers, if they're using PowerPoint, do they have the same level of knowledge of well, PowerPoint? Well, yeah, this is the other thing. It is a, a they vicious circle. They want to keep it simple. That most of the speakers are terrible and most of the PowerPoint decks are terrible. So they dumb down the presentation, the delivery, to green button, red button, and that's all you got. And hopefully you remember what's on your slides. And if not, you're probably a bad enough speaker that you're going to turn around and look at the slide anyway, and then you're going to hit the next slide and read it out. So that's what they kind of prep for. And then what happens is they've taken away the tools. So decent speakers can't do very much with it. So they're hobbled and that diminishes the quality of their presentation. And it just ends up being a spiral. Well, it depends on what, it depends on what kind of speaking you're doing. So if you were doing a motivational type speech, then you don't really need PowerPoint at all. Well, that's a whole different kind yeah, of thing, but, but I if don't you're think doing, many of our audience are doing those kind of presentations. Well, if you're doing the presentation and you're doing something where you have a PowerPoint deck and you're going through your slides, then yeah, those things are getting familiar with PowerPoint and what it can do and using the rehearse, uh, using the presenter tools, I think it's incredibly um, important. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's interesting is that um, the um, the woman that I work with, with at Great Was Casualty, who is basically running the show, getting everything organized, 
said, oh, I love your PowerPoint. And I'm like, oh, great. Thank you. And she said, you don't have any movies. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why it is that uh, PowerPoint can never get movies working properly. As soon as she said that, I was like, yep, I've been at those events where people are fumbling trying to get their movies going. Our presentations, we tried to add movies. Uh, No, we had it working. I know, but it was not easy. But we don't use PowerPoint. We use Keynote, which really handles the movies so much more nicely. But PowerPoint, it's like it's struggling and it, you know, the engine may not make it up the hill if it has to play a movie. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, there are some things with PowerPoint. Oh, my favorite with PowerPoint is um, I'm a pretty heavy, like I'm pretty much expert in PowerPoint. So I have a subscription. I do the Microsoft Office subscription thing. And I'm, I'm on the program that I don't actually get the latest and greatest betas, but I'll get the betas that have been tested a little bit. So I get features before everybody else. And anyone can do this. If you have the subscription to um, Microsoft Office, you can ask to be part of these betas. Yeah, it's just in the preferences. Yeah. And what uh, the reason that I wanted to in the first place was because I wanted to be able to schedule Outlook messages. Hmm. And you can't do that. You can do that on a PC, but you can't do it on a Mac. So I was, you know, I went onto the forum and basically asked for it and voted for it and did all the things you're supposed to do. But the other thing that I noticed was um, being able to embed fonts. Oh, yeah. In a PowerPoint presentation, and I love fonts, much uh-huh. to your chagrin. Yeah. I love me some good fonts. And so I'm like, oh, that is so exciting because that these are the things that excite me. And um, so I'm like, okay, upvote that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And finally, and it comes out. And I'm trying to figure out how to do it is so I can't find anything out. And it's weird because it's telling me that this, this new version it, uh, supports it, but I can't figure out how to use it. So I finally go and look it up in the support documents and and you can only do it on Windows. <laughs> and I think that, that the entire universe let out a huge groan because the people who are making fonts and who are designing PowerPoint to make it look really cool are not using Windows. Yeah. They're Mac heads. These are graphic artists. They're not using Windows. Well, there may be a few, but it's Mac, so Microsoft has decided in its wisdom to make graphics better for Windows, but not Macs. Well, they have five times as many developers on the Windows version, so it gets to the Windows version first, and if it's popular, then they'll move it over to the Mac side. But I yeah. guess, but it's uh, like there was a lot of shaking heads, rolling eyes in the graphics community, I think, because yeah. a lot of companies get graphic artists to design their PowerPoint mm-hmm. and then, you know, hand it back to them, but they can't embed the font. Yeah. So I went through this huge thing where I ha- we have a PC, like we have PCs as well. So I did the presentation on a PC, you know, imported all my fonts from various places, embedded it in the on the PC, and now I can open it on a Mac. However... I have to be really careful that I don't add another font that can't be read on a PC or or is not true type or something like that because it won't let me save it. So it makes me crazy. But I have been able to embed fonts. We'll have to see what happens at well, the convention. That's another thing that's kind of tricky is people sometimes use a fancy font that's on their machine and don't even think about it. So then you view it on the final version uh, on the live, uh, the deck in, in the actual presentation and the words are wrapping in a very bizarre way or and you there's die some, inside. Yeah. There's some, uh, uh, some weird font substitution that happens. I've seen that and I'm like, Oh, why didn't somebody look at it on this machine before running this presentation? So, and it's uh, a stupid thing. You should be able to have it you should be able to automatically embed fonts if you're doing a, a run only, like a read only. Yeah, absolutely. If you're only just, you're not going to edit it while you're doing the presentation. You're only going to run the presentation. So you should be able to just embed everything. Like you it's do with ridiculous. a PDF. It should just have a sort of self-contained encapsulated file that has everything in it. The some movies, PDFs, the custom fonts. Some PDFs won't, won't save custom fonts. It depends on the font. 
there are certain fonts that are set up so they can't be yeah. embedded. Uh, but yeah, I wish people would get on top of that. And are we that. are we like really in the weeds here? Yeah, but a lot of our audience is doing stuff with PowerPoint all the okay. time. Although it's funny because I was reminded again this week of uh, my, I wouldn't say, uh, well, hatred of PowerPoint, but how much I, I don't really respect it. Oh, um, yeah. Because this week we did our quarterly uh, webinar that is focused on the product. What's new with our, our product? So um, we normally do kind of here's the new features, things that we've added, things that we're optimizing and sort of tips to make life better for uh, customers and things like that. And this month for the first time, I didn't do it. I'm trying to sort of move some of these webinars off my plate. And since I'm not that actively involved in the product anymore outside of the design phase, when it comes to actually delivering a webinar that's here's the, uh, the nuts and bolts of how to use a particular feature, I end up having to go to the support people anyway or having to go and dig it up and sort of relearn it. So it made more sense for me to say, well, why don't we just have the support people do the webinar? Um, they're talking to customers. They know what the common issues are. They know what the new features are. Uh, and particularly Tommy, who does the, a lot of the testing and the QA work. So he knows all of the features and how they work and the ins and outs, all of them. So he did the webinar this week. And, I forgot to ask you how that went. I guess you're going to um, tell me right now. Well, I went through it with him. And, and so this is one of the first parts of it is that he's got to build his slide deck. Right. And I use Apple's Keynote uh, program to do uh, slides and I love it and I've been using it for long enough that I can zip around in it like nothing uh, but he uses PowerPoint of course he's a PC guy so uh, that's the default for that and I was reminded of just how hard Microsoft works to make it impossible for you to do a decent looking slide deck that their default like if there's two decisions they could make and one will take you down the path of a nice looking deck and the other one takes you down the path of a disgusting pile of garbage. That's the direction they go. Yeah. It's just, they just want you to have this dense bullet list of shite every time. And so he's trying to fix that, but it just like simple stuff. Like if you open a slide in keynote, the default slide is centered horizontally and vertically and you type in text, and as it wraps, it grows out from the center of the thing. And it's also a very large font. So it encourages you to be sparse on what you put on the slide, and everything is centered already. PowerPoint, the default version, is top left in a small font. So, of course, you're going to fill that slide with 200 words. And if you don't, if you try and do something sparse, it's up in the top left corner. you got to move the box around and resize it. It's just a mess. So... I went through it with him and we updated templates and fixed that. He ended up with a deck that looked pretty good. Now, he's doing a session on what's new with our product. Most of it is screenshots anyway. It's a, here's a, a new form or we've changed things and here's how you go about using it. So he's not doing a lot of very wordy slides, but um, it was just, I had a quick look at it. It was like, oh yeah, PowerPoint. You're going to get a ton of tiny bullets. That's what everybody wants to do. So uh, I'm not a fan of PowerPoint. Well, PowerPoint can be um, controlled. You just have to be very, um, trying to think of the word, you have to know what you want. You have to be very, okay, I know that you want to give me 50 bullet points, but I'm going, what I do is I go into the slide template and I start removing, you know, the the slide, the slide layout where you have like, five different bullets and it goes down in size yeah. every time I remove the bottom two or three. So they're not even there anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but I also go in and delete things that I'm never going to use and like the weird sideways things that you can have. Like, why would you, anybody want to use a sideways, well, sideways that's a key text? Thing, I think is getting in there and cleaning up the templates and then relying on those templates and not, thinking that you've got to fill every slide. Yeah. So Well, I, we often only have you know, one sentence on a slide or one mm -hmm. picture on a slide. And and I've decided, and I think that we've made a, a conscious decision a few years ago to just make them white, like forget the backgrounds. Yeah. Our background is white and the content is what is supposed to draw your eye and that's it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Much and my, my cool fonts. 
That's that's what's supposed to draw your eye. Yeah, exactly. So I think in another month or two, I'll have my uh, webinar on making the most of PowerPoint, which is my chance to rant about all of the things I hate about PowerPoint and how to fix them. Oh, it was them. funny because when we were doing the the PowerPoint deck for uh, the TCA convention, I was just like, I'm taking this away from you. <laughs> yes. I don't hate PowerPoint like you do. And you can work with it and you make it look nice. It looks, that deck ended up looking really good. And there's, man, there's things that you come up with that would never even occur to me, whether or not I like the application and am comfortable using the tool. There's things that just wouldn't occur to me from a design standpoint. So yeah. it's better for you to finish it off and, you know, make it look snappy the way you do. I try. Mm-hmm. I do that when it, that's actually one of the things I do when I don't want, because I've been using PowerPoint since 19, it might be the 80s or the like early 90s. I don't even know when it first came out, but I was using it really early on. And that was when, you know, screen beans were the thing. And, <laughs> and you know, when if you resaved the same PowerPoint file too many times, then it would become... You wouldn't be able to open it anymore. Like so, in the early two thousands, I was I was known for being able to save, resurrect PowerPoint decks <laughs> that other people had just. Oh my god, yeah, the things that. Oh my god, the things that would happen to PowerPoint. So there really isn't much about PowerPoint that I don't know. Hmm. It, and it's just a matter of working with it for years and years and years. So. It's, uh, but it, I like doing it because it's kind of relaxing for me. Yeah, you don't <laughs> have you, to really it's think. This major stressor, and I'm like, oh, I'll do that PowerPoint. Well, that's kind of how I am. It's like in, a vacation. In, in Keynote, I'm like that. I'm comfortable enough that I don't have to think that much about it. And I've adapted my work processes to fit the way the application works. So I end up creating something that looks pretty good and works nicely, and it's not a struggle for me that way. But we also went through the same process recently doing a bunch of other creative stuff and having to use uh, Adobe Illustrator and InDesign. And oh, yes. both of those, even though they're both Adobe products, they're they work the completely same. differently. And you're totally comfortable in Illustrator. So that's the first place you go for any kind of design type stuff. Even if you're doing like layout sort of stuff, you're more comfortable in Illustrator. So you go there. I'm much more comfortable in InDesign. And uh, I am clueless in Illustrator, so I uh, I do all of the work for Illustrator, or all of the InDesign work I'll do, and if it's Illustrator work, I'll get you to do it. And uh, so I can sort of lay out, we are doing the Best Fleet's uh, results book, which is like a 20-page book where we've got to put text and images and you lay can't out like do a that magazine. In Illustrator. No, you really need something like InDesign that's designed for magazine layout. Um, and I'm perfectly comfortable doing that. I zipped through it, and it was pretty happy with it. Uh, but the parts of it that are Illustrator, the artsy things, uh, yeah, I need you to do those things for sure. And I'm very happy to, to not use InDesign for anything. I'm I'm kind of against straight lines. I've I've always <laughs> been like that. You know, when I drew a picture, I I like to I tend not to be able to color inside the lines when I draw something. If I ugh, measurement was always wor the worst for me because I have a really hard time with like actually getting a precise me measurement. So I can sort of estimate pretty well. And I'm really good at estimating a center line. But if you're trying to get me to measure precisely, then I'm, I suck. I give me a wavy line and I'm, I'm your man. Yeah. Which is what happens all the time when we do like a, a design for a trade show booth uh, or magazine or printables like flyers and things like that. You do the stuff in Illustrator and it, or yeah, you do it in Illustrator and it's sort of close, but you've got a design, you know what it should look like. But then I have to rebuild it in InDesign Aww. because we have to have all the dimensions precise. Because if we have, like I just did, uh, we, we did the booth for the TCA convention. It's going to be basically a 10 foot wide picture. And if something is off center or not aligned, when it's blown up to that size, it's going to drive us crazy over this. Even though it's only six hours of exhibit time, you're going to see it and you're not going to be able to unsee it. So I know. I'm going to have to have my hand over it. <laughs> yeah. Do not look here in the center of so this booth that I've messed I up. That's where I have to have to get all of those details and, and drill down into the InDesign file and, and clean it up and make sure it's all precise. But 
they give you lots of tools to help with that kind of stuff. And uh, once you've used it a little bit, you can get around pretty quickly in that. So I think our booth is going to look very nice. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, that's, I guess, what we've got coming up in the next couple of weeks is finishing up that, picking up the Best Fleet's results books and Yay! our new flyers and getting all of those things done. So by the time we actually get to the convention at the end of March, uh, we can kind of relax. All the hard work is done. Not quite, because I'll have two more. I'll have two more trips after that. Yeah, so. but you'll have done the speech three times, so yep. you know you'll be able to do it in your sleep by then. And what's really nice is that we have uh, coursework happening. Yes, we got lots of yes. lots of product stuff that's on the go, uh, and we'll right. get to that in a bit. But there's one other thing that I wanted to talk about, going way back to the uh, the Great West uh, speakers. And one of the things that happened there, you mentioned it briefly, but the mock trial. And uh, I thought that was very interesting. I thought it'd be worth discussing a little bit uh, because one of the things that's on the agenda there is uh, a mock trial. And it's they have like 90 minutes or something allocated for it. It's a pretty long time. Um, I think that's what it was at the Great West Casualty Symposium. It was about 90 minutes. Maybe even two hours. Yeah, it takes it's a while. A, yeah, but that was my first time seeing one. So... Um, and I don't think we've really talked about it since, but other than the fact that it sort of creeped you out seeing all of these injuries that were similar to your own plastered up on screen, but, uh, just the whole process of how the plaintiff articulated their case and what the defense was and all of that sort of thing. I thought and talking was... about the, um, what did they call it? The reptile Oh, reptile, yeah, reptile, reptile theory or something like that. Yeah. And that I had basically never... trying to scare the hell out of the jury so that they, side with the uh, plaintiff and punish those awful truckers. Yeah, which I think is, well, it's one of those things that's brilliant yet horrible at the same time. You know, (laughs) it was a really good idea if you're trying to get as much money out of a trucking company as possible. It was brilliant. But on the other side of it, like the only person that it really benefits is the attorneys. Yeah, because I just don't see... When they talk about, they're talking about not just the compensatory damages, uh, but they're suing for punitive. They want to send a message to this awful trucking company. But I don't think anybody's getting this message because they're still doing what they're always doing. They're just having better defense for things. And I'm not a fan of the whole process, the whole punitive damages thing. And, oh, this poor woman was so grossly disfigured and injured and the awful trucker needs to be blamed for it. Well, there's a lot of people that are at fault anytime something happens. And pinning it all on one person and sticking them with a $50 million settlement is just ridiculous. Um, But I did think it was very interesting the way they positioned it Uh, And the plaintiffs made a good argument that here's all of the problems and they found some things that were gaps. And what struck me is that these are the kind of questions we get from customers sometimes about, oh, how does your stuff stand up in court when somebody is trying to uh, fight that accusation that they're uh, negligent or that they're not a good company and all of that kind of thing. And what I found, I mean, I was listening to this and to be honest, I was citing in a large part with the plaintiff, because I thought in this particular case, it was had been a winter situation and a snowstorm in the Northeast. There was a bunch of cars that had had sort of a, um, had cracked up and they were sort of stopped and over the side of the road and they were, drivers were out and all of that kind of thing, sort of dealing with it, which there's a whole bunch of things that shouldn't have been happening there as well. But this, uh, the truck came through, um, came through and uh, hit one of them and pinned the woman was pinned underneath the truck. And because of that, she was sort of stuck on this like frozen uh, road for like 40 minutes. And there's all of these other things. And she actually flatlined a couple of times um, before they were able to resuscitate her and get her back. And she'd lost her arms. You get tons of problems. So, you know, that's the, the genesis of this whole claim is that the truck driver was negligent or the trucking company was negligent for allowing this driver to do this for everything, all of their actions. And the defense is basically that um, the driver was not speeding and um, was adequately trained and had gone to orientation and completing the program, had spent a couple of weeks on the road with the trainer and all of this. And then so they're doing everything they should and they're not negligent. But 
I just had so many other questions that I wanted to ask about this program or about everything that happened. Like, you know, why were these people out of the road? Why was, uh, what was going on? What was the situation on the road at exactly the time that it happened? What was going on there? And from the trucking company's point of view, they had the issue. One of the issues was that this was a driver who grew up in Florida and this was his first time driving in the Northeast and he hadn't done any trips into the Northeast with a trainer. And I'm thinking, well, why would you send a driver on a trip to the Northeast when the weather is predictably going to be snowy? It was January or something without having a trainer go along with them. Or have them trained in Yeah, if that's the kind of route that somebody's going to be on, yeah, train them on that and send them on the road with a trainer. Like, why would you open yourself up for problems? You know, if you send a driver from Florida into the Northeast when there's a snowstorm, you know there's going to be a problem. However, they made a good point, and I can't... can't remember if that was after the the mock trial was about how there's not really anything in the regulations that exactly. says that you have to yeah. have winter yeah. driving skills or that you have to even know i mean you in in reality yeah, they weren't breaking the law at no. all so that and and i'm not saying that they were i'm saying from a common sense business management point of view why would you open up your people to those kind of problems Probably because it just didn't, because it's not regulated, because it's not something that, um, or everybody else is fine with it. And you know what? A lot of people who don't drive in snow don't realize what it's like to drive in snow. And the people who do drive in snow don't think about it either, because it's just, when you've grown up driving in snow, that's just something you do. Yeah. So when you don't drive in snow and you don't realize the dangers of it, then you're you think you can drive normally. So it, it, it there's a lot of um, sort of unspoken assumptions about snow that people have when they live in snow and when they don't live in snow. It's on both sides, and it's one of those things that really needs to have a little bit more uh, attention paid to it. I mean, we get a lot of drivers here who come from warmer countries where they don't have snow. And we, and in Canada, there's much more, it can be a little bit more, because when you're here, we all know when snow falls, I mean, when the, even when rain hits, mm-hmm. like, you know, the people, you can tell the people who don't know how to drive in it. So it's, it's one of those things that it's in the back of our heads all the time. You got to have winter driving, you got to practice your winter driving skills. But if you're down in the South, mm-hmm. it wouldn't even occur to you. Well, it, it struck me because I was thinking, yeah, there's really, this is a solvable problem. This is a situation that can be avoided with a little bit of planning. And I think I'm probably going to write an article about it or something about sort of best practices around prepping people for different regions. Um, Because it's a similar situation that if you got somebody who uh, is, grows up in a rural area and, you know, someplace that isn't that heavily populated and that's where they get their CDL and that's where they're driving. And then they get put on a run to New York City or they get put on a run into Los Angeles or Chicago or something that's just as dangerous and is just as stressful for them. So you really need to have a a more focused training program for these people that includes the theoretical stuff. So a course on winter driving or a course on dealing with cities or uh, heavy congestion or whatever that new situation is. But then they also need some time on the road Mm -hmm. practicing or with a simulator if you have one, but really prep these people. I mean, you think about it, if somebody's going to drive a different kind of equipment, if they're going to move from dry van to flatbed, they get put into a training course. You don't just stick them in the in the truck and send them up. Right. You put into a training course. There's practical elements. They often get road work. And it's the exact same thing that the airlines do when a pilot moves from one type of plane to another. You get all of this practice. You get certified in that type of stuff. You almost need the same kind of thing for drivers. You're certified to drive in the winter. You're certified to drive mm. in congested cities. You're certified to drive, I don't know, somewhere else where there's going to be disaster, a disaster area where there's floods, something like that. So all of these things are not that complicated to build. There are known commodities. You know, It's well known how to survive, how to do well in those situations. But you just have to have that program to get it ready and teach people about it. And then I would say that if somebody has got that kind of a program, you know, it's a whole different situation. If they do end up in court, well, look at all of the stuff that we've got. Here are all the things that we did and to prep for it. And, you know, I keep going back to the example of looking at the situation, the, the, 
we've talked about it before, the program that Bison Transport uses where they have coaches that identify what the issue is. They put together an individual plan for each person, uh, this training, that's coaching, that's road work, whatever the case may be, and they address it as necessary. And if somebody doesn't come up to speed, if they don't uh, um, learn the way they should, then sometimes they're not a fit for the company, but they have these individualized plans that work and it solves a lot of problems. So I came away from that mock trial really sort of fascinated by the process. I had more questions than I got answers to, that's for sure. Um, but it really got me thinking about sort of best practices and creating different programs and things like that and how people could be packaging their different, I guess, job descriptions or the type of work that they're doing rather than just saying, okay, you're, you're a, a dry van person on this particular customer. Well, What's the area that you're going into? What are you dealing with? How well are you prepared for it? All of that kind of thing. Which is something that you're supposed to do when you're prepare for, preparing for a trip anyway. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things, you know, what is this route? What is the parking situation like? What are the, you know, what kinds of things are on the way? What should I look out for? What field stops should I make? There is that. Yeah. What's the weather going to be? And well, what the and weather was, is going to be is is part of it. And this was one of the other questions that I had. Like this driver in this particular crash, the driver wasn't speeding, but it was heavy snow and whiteout conditions, and he was going 45 miles an hour in a 55 zone. So yeah, he wasn't speeding, but still 45. He was at the upper limit. 45 of driving, yeah. in a snowy, snow-covered road like that, that's a little quick. So what else was happening? Like why was he doing that? Why was he going that fast? Uh, what, why wasn't he just pulled over and stopped? You know, why not wait it out? So what was dispatch telling him? What was, uh, what was the situation with the customer? What was the customer expecting? Is he feeling pressure to get this thing delivered? Was this driver driving like that? Cause it was just complete ignorance. Uh, or was he feeling pressured to go beyond what he felt safe with? So I have all of these different questions that, you know, things that I would have asked if I was a uh, cross-examining or things that I would have pointed out if I was a defense person or something like that. So really got me uh, thinking. I thought, found it quite interesting. Is there a mock trial at uh, the convention? I don't think so. Oh, okay. I thought you, you said something that made me think there was, but... Yeah, I don't know. I'll look now. I don't... Because if there is, I may go to it. Yeah. Yeah, I find them very fascinating. So that's all of the thoughts and things that uh, have been happening over the last little while uh, outside of sort of external to the business um, happening inside the business. You mentioned that you've got a bunch of coursework that's still happening. So you got some, some people that are working on some new titles and, mm-hmm. and what's happening there. Um, well, we have a harassment or a workplace violence storyboard. So once uh, I have to review that. So once we start getting that, finalized, then um, I believe Julie's starting to put it online right now. So that should be like a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks. Nice. Um, so like yeah. mid-April it should be done? Yeah. Uh, we're also working on some some more translation. So. Well, you got the uh, Spanish. I did the recording session this week. Yep. Spanish FISMA and the HOS updates. Yep. So that those should all be coming I'm in trying the next to schedule in uh, Denis to do some French HOS yeah, updates. Yeah, before he goes off on one of his jaunts. Yeah. Um, Where are we at with U.S. forklift? Is that happening too? Julie is also working on that right now. She's ah. taking, yeah. She, I, I could, there's a problem with regular, um, with stats in Canada. And what I find is that whenever I try to find stats, about traffic or road incidents in Canada or accidents or anything like that, it is really brutal to find good ones or find ones that are actually up to date. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I just use them from the US. Mm-hmm. So I got a message from her a couple of days ago saying, what course do you want me to do? Is this the US course? And I'm thinking, okay, well, I'll talk to you. I'll talk to her when I get back. So so I'm talking to her about it and I said, okay, you know, it is a Canadian course and we want to make sure that it complies with whatever the U.S. needs. And she goes, yeah, but you have the first thing that you have on the first page is, is something from OSHA. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, oh, the OSHA yeah. stats. Yeah, because you can actually get good stats from OSHA. Because you can actually get them. And that's why I explained that to her. She's like, oh, okay. So if we had, the problem is the, the provinces tend to be the ones 
who collect those stats and at the federal level they're very general and you can't really get them mm-hmm. like i can't get forklift statistics from stats can in any easy form i mean if i spent most of my life searching for them i might be able to but it's just easier to go osha because it mm-hmm. you know north america is pretty much the same yeah it's not going to be that so, much different, I don't think. So she's starting to work on that. I really don't think it's going to be all that different. I mean, I think there's going to be some regulatory safety things because um, there's a little bit of difference provincially, but it's very minor. So I don't think it's going to be all that much. So she'll probably be able to just take that and pretty quickly Americanize the spelling and put in a couple of different pages that that are American-specific, and hopefully that should be around May. Nice. Okay. So we got a bunch of stuff coming mm-hmm. in the next couple of months. And I have a new developer, a new content developer starting on Monday. All so, right. So we're yes. going to crank it even more. So she, I think, I believe, unless we decide differently right now, is going to work on a French translation for vehicle inspection. She's going to do some research into the Quebec uh the Quebec differences in, in the regulations. Mm-hmm. And then so we'll have a we'll have a French version of vehicle inspection for Canada. And we'll also have a Quebec version. So <laughs> Which for anybody, will be English and French. Yeah, well, we may well not we're do. gonna have the uh, I don't know why. I mean if we have it in English, we may as well do it in French. Well we'll have to do it in French, the Quebec version, but will we do it in English? I'm as sorry, well? if we if we do it in French, we may as well do it in English. Sure. It will have to be what the timing is like. What's funny about that is that just is such a magnifier or a multiplier of different courses because you're going to have French version of our existing uh, vehicle inspection. I know. Then you'll have the Quebec rules in English and French yep. for both and all of that for both tractor trailer and straight truck. Yes. So Not to mention that there's a tractor... Uh, this vehicle inspection for a straight truck and tractor trailer that are a U.S. version because the inspection reports are different and the rules around yeah, that are got, different. That's all out of the Plus way Plus they're done. Spanish. Yeah, we've got the English and Spanish. That's all done. The issue with this Quebec thing is the crazy rule that Quebec-plated vehicles have different inspection requirements. Actually, speaking of that, um, one of the things I learned at this, uh, at this uh, Phoenix Symposium was that in California, there's different, the ELD rule is kind of different. So apparently if you are going within the 100 mile radius, you don't need ELDs. And so many of the interstate commercial vehicles are actually running 100 mile radius. I could see that. So they're not using ELDs. Yeah, it's densely populated enough that you can You don't have to go out of the state. Less than 100 miles. And so there's a lot of, you know, it's sort of unfair competition for the carriers who are interstate and they have to have ELDs. So that whole, you know, can, you can have a little bit more, well, people basically feel like they can cheat on their logs a little bit easier and so they can have lower yeah, rates. Yeah, but if they're 100 air mile radius, they don't have to keep logs. There's other weird hours of service rules in California. Oh, so it's kind of like Alberta is here yes, where yes. if you're just, uh, if you're not leaving, if you're just within that jurisdiction, mm-hmm. you, you have a separate set of rules that you can apply that are basically akin to having no rules. And there's some 16-hour work shift thing, and I was just fascinated by this. Unfortunately, the first time I heard about it, I had still had this, I had just gotten off this plane, <laughs> and I still- Jane took some drugs. Yeah, and so I'm trying to, you know, be like a normal human being, and and it was at dinner that night, so I was actually feeling a little bit better, but it was in a crowded room, and they were sort of saying, no, 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 it's like this. And I'm like, what? That's crazy. <laughs> I was just thinking, no, there's more hours of service craziness? Oh, my God. And uh, then it, um, the next day at breakfast, I was talking a little bit more about it. It was just, it amazes me that it's it's a tough, it's a tough industry to be in, just about the weird regulations. And then there's the whole, um, uh, what do you call it? Like the meal 
and break oh, thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and 4A appara- stuff. Yeah, and apparently in, the, in California, that's a big deal, too. So. Well, California is what's prompting everybody to push for it to be solved federally. Yeah. Yeah, California, it's got it's its own world. And you often see in the news that you know, this, this weird thing is happening and it's California. And sometimes it's not even the entire state. It's just the ports. But that's such a large portion of the freight that it ends up uh, affecting everybody. So Yeah. It's, yeah, uh, that's tough. It, yeah, there's a lot of challenges for sure. And you don't realize, and the, like the deeper that you get into the industry, the more you realize how complex it is and, and how it's complex, not because of, it's not because of them internally, like the industry is an internal thing. Mm-hmm. It's not that they're creating the problems, is that the outside world is creating these problems and that trucking is trying to deal with it, but it, they haven't historically been able to deal with it as a mass unit, I think they're much more able to deal with these external forces as a unit than they have been before. Yeah. I see the the industry seems to be unifying, unifying, and so that decisions can get made. But there's just like all the lawsuits and all of the regulations and what things because the fear that people have about big trucks and how much you can be hurt by them is kind of taking all the common sense out of it. Absolutely. And then, but then on the other side, you have people who are breaking the rules and have major safety hazards on the road. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can have to balance those two. Yeah, there are bad actors on oh, both yeah. sides for sure. And there we go. And there we are. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> that is what I have to say about that. Yeah. Um, well, I think that kind of wraps us up. I don't have anything else to go through. All right. So thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you and have a good day. day.